I could go home right now. Because this has been amazing. Being in the presence of the Father. And worshiping Him. And loving on Him. But there is a word that God has put in my heart that I need to share. And so I'm going to share it. And it may only be for one person. It may only be for me to speak it. I don't know. But the reality is, is that I'm being, in the same way that we heard Roy this morning say he was being obedient to follow what God told him to do, I am being obedient to tell you the words that I feel like God would have me to tell you. So, um, we're going to be looking at a number of different passages of Scripture, but first of all, if you will, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. That's an interesting book, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Go to the very center of your Bible, open it up, you'll find Psalms. Then go a little bit farther to the to the back, towards the back, and you'll find Isaiah after Proverbs, then you're going to find Jeremiah, and then immediately after Jeremiah, you're going to find Ezekiel. Well, no, there's still Lamentations, but anyway, then there's Ezekiel. But Ezekiel is this really interesting, interesting prophet. And before we get into what his word from the Lord says, let me share with you just a little bit about his background so that you'll understand who this guy is. Ezekiel was the son of a priest. So Ezekiel came from a family that had a little bit of clout in the nation of Israel. He had access to the temple area. He had access to the palace. He was of the upper crust in the Israel uh, in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. It was in the waning years of the nation of Israel, under the kingdoms, under you know David and Solomon, and all the way down. Um, it was just before the Babylonian exile that Ezekiel lived. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel was one of the first group to leave Jerusalem captive under the uh, the watchful care of the army of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So Ezekiel gets exiled to Babylon with all of the upper crust, all of the, 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 the good people, all of the, the knowledgeable people, all of the holy people, all of the, the righteous people. And um, so this priest guy who has access to all of the upper crust who have now been cast out of their city and out of their land and carried into exile, he gets contacted by the Holy One of God. And if you take the time, you know, I'm not going to take that on this morning, but if you take the time to read Ezekiel chapter 1, ooh, that's a really cool vision that he has. When I was a kid, I used to think it was like a UFO coming out of the sky. Read it. It's really weird. I mean, there's like, wow, wow, wow. There's all these... Angels and wheels and spirits and wheels turning and turning and turning and, and these guys that have four faces but they don't move because they have four faces so that they can just go in whatever direction they want to go without turning their heads and then above that there's the there's this rainbow looking thing and then there's this face but there's no body it's just really bizarre and weird and he wrote it down for other people to read I don't understand because he was just inviting criticism on himself. And then if you read some of his things, I mean, this guy laid on one side for six or eight months while he was laying siege to a brick named Jerusalem. And then he laid on his other 
aside for another six or seven months while he continued to lay siege to the brick known as Jerusalem. And how did he eat? He prepared his food over human excrement. Well, actually, that's what God told him to do. And then he begged God to not force him to do that because he said, that will defile me, God. In all of my life, I've never defiled myself. Please don't make me do that. And God said, okay, you can cook your food over cow poop. This was Ezekiel. I mean, he he had some really crazy things that God asked him to do, and he did them as a way to demonstrate God's word to the people of God who were in exile. God had some very specific things that God wanted to communicate to the people who were in exile in Babylon at that time, and God raised up a prophet named Ezekiel. Now, let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16 through uh, 21 is what we're going to be looking at. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life? That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, If a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. And because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he had done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he doesn't sin, he shall surely live because he took the warning, and you will have delivered your soul. I was 17 years old when I began to feel like God was calling me into formal ministry. I didn't have words to describe how, what, where. I I didn't have a mentor in my life at that point. So it took a couple, three years for me to finally come to an understanding that God had called me into vocational ministry to preach the word of God. But when I came across this passage at age 17... 18, only a year or two in my walk with Jesus as my Savior. These were scary words to me because, oh my word, if I don't tell people about Jesus and they die in their sins, God's going to hold me accountable. Freak me out. Christian guilt. False guilt. Nobody teaching me any of that. And I walked in it for a long time. I have to tell people about Jesus, otherwise they're going to die in their sins and God's going to hold me accountable. Over time, God revealed to me other things. One of which, if you'll turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18, you'll read from Ezekiel's own words. These are actually God speaking through Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Now, the whole chapter goes on, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to read that. But what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18 is, it used to be the mindset of the community that if the father sinned, that God was going to visit the penalty for that sin down to the third and fourth generation. You've heard that. That's something you've read before in the Old Testament. Well, Ezekiel very clearly says that God has said that's changing. The way I'm relating with human humanity now is, if you sin, I'm holding you accountable for your sin. And you will pay the penalty for your sin, not your kids. And if your kids see how you live and say, I don't want to live like that, and they live righteously, I'm going to bless them regardless of how their father or their mother lived. This is how I'm going to be relating to not only all of Israel, but all of humanity from this point forward. And so God said, the individual who sins is responsible for their own sin. The penalty will be theirs to pay. But then if you go to Ezekiel chapter 33, and we don't have to turn there this morning, just know that it's there. It's the, I think it's the first nine verses of 33. It's almost an exact restatement of Ezekiel 3, 18 through 21. 16 through 21. Where God says, I have set you up as a watchman. And when I give you a word to tell to the people, you better tell the people. Because if you don't and they die in their sin, I'm holding you accountable. Wait a minute, God. You just said a few chapters back in my writings that if they sin, it's their problem, not mine. And I want, I want you to hear the one thing that's the caveat for this, that, that, that is the hook for why God is saying this to Ezekiel. Because he says it both in chapter 3 and in chapter 33. Ezekiel, you Ezekiel, not Bob Sugden, not Mary Hiller, not Tanya, not Don, not Evelyn, not Elsie, but Ezekiel, I have set you with a specific task you, Ezekiel, have been appointed my watchman over my people. It is your responsibility to declare danger. Now, for those of us who don't live in that type of a culture, we don't have a city wall that we all run into and hide ourselves in to protect ourselves from danger. But back then, the people lived in the city walls when there was danger present and they worked outside of the city walls. So while they're out working in their fields or whatever they're doing, there was always a person up on the wall in a watchtower and their job was to watch and scan the horizon throughout their shift of duty. And as they stood on that watchtower watching for danger, if they saw danger, it was their job to then go... 
And everyone in the community knew if they heard that shofar blowing, they were to run as fast as they could into the city walls so that they could be safe from the danger that was approaching. So God said to Ezekiel, I am appointing you as a watchman over my people. Specifically, Ezekiel, I'm appointing you as a watchman to the people who have just been banished to live in Babylon. It is your responsibility, because I know that I can trust you. It is your responsibility to carefully listen for my directions, for my words, and then you are to proclaim them to my people. And if you read in his, his, his appointment in the, first, in the first three chapters of Ezekiel, God literally said, I'm not sending you to somebody who you don't know their language. I'm sending you to your own people. I'm sending you to people that you don't have to learn a new culture. You don't have to learn a new uh, way of dress. You don't have to learn a new vocabulary. You are one of these people. And you just need to be prepared to speak my words to your people when I give them to you. And if they don't listen, it's their business. But you have a responsibility for me to always be watching for my, my notice so that I can give you the word that needs to go to the people. And that was the relationship that God transacted with Ezekiel so that Ezekiel could be the watchman and the speaker of God's word to the people who were specifically in that situation. That kind of relieves me a little bit of this idea that, oh my word, I'm called into the ministry and if I don't tell somebody about being saved, then I'm going to go to hell. But see, I have to look to Jesus for my example. Not Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the other Old Testament. So I look at Jesus. I guess I look at John the Baptist. That's kind of scary because he's he's kind of like Old Testament prophet. Repent, you brood of vipers who told you to turn. Repent, you sinners. And I was like, I don't like those words. Because again, this is not my nature. This is not who I am. I am not the guy who's going to stand on the corner of Airport Way and University and hold the placard up that says, Stop killing babies. It's just not who I am. I am not the person that's going to go down to the community center and have a, a, a petition to get the abortion blah, blah, blah put onto the ballot. It's just not who I am. Do I have personal feelings about certain things? Yes. Do I feel like people are sinners? Yes. Do I think they need to be called out for their sin? Yes. But it is not me who's going to stand out publicly and scream at them. I have been, believe me, I was in San Antonio, Texas at the Alamo. And there was this man standing up on a, a little a wall around a, a little a green area. And he had a megaphone. And he was broadcasting the gospel of Jesus Christ to those sinners out there. And I was embarrassed. And I was like, God, you are not winning anybody to Jesus with what you're doing. Why are you doing that? But see, the reality is, he was doing what God told him to do. It was not my calling. It was his calling. 
His calling was to stand on that little wall with the megaphone looking like an idiot, yelling at people that they were sinners and they were going to go to hell. Why? I don't know. It was God who directed it. I just thank God it wasn't me. Because it's not me to do that. Now, does that mean God will never ask me to do it? I don't think so. God can do whatever God wants and God can call me to whatever God wants. But I think God knows us, me, well enough that he's, he's going to stretch me. He's going to ask me to do things that would make me uncomfortable, to make me a better, stronger human being and a better, stronger Christian. But I don't necessarily think he's going to violate who he created me to be to force me into a mold that somebody else is supposed to be filling. Now, what does that all say? As I have reflected on this, I looked at Jesus. I looked at three specific situations where Jesus was confronted by a sinner. And you heard the way I phrased that specifically. The way Jesus was confronted by a sinner, not the way Jesus confronted a sinner. Okay? So if you look, first of all, in John chapter 8, and you don't have to turn there, it's a very, very familiar passage. But John chapter 8, we are told a story where the the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin grab a woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery, and they bring her to the temple area where Jesus is teaching, and they say... We caught this woman in adultery. And the law of Moses says that we are supposed to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And if you read it, what did Jesus do? He didn't say don't stone her. He said, I don't have a problem with you stoning her, but the law says the person who was harmed by her sin should be the first person to cast a stone. In other words, her husband, who she was cheating on, should be the one to throw the first stone. So, let's just put it this way. Why doesn't the the one of you who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone? Well, in that crowd, who was the one who was without sin? There was only one person sitting there. It was Jesus. And he wasn't about to throw a stone at that woman. And they were all standing around waiting for one person to start. And then finally, people started getting, it not doesn't say it specifically, but it intimates. They got convicted of their own stuff. And it says the oldest started first to walk away. Finally, the whole crowd dissipated and Jesus looks up and there's just him and the woman left. And he looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there's no one left, sir. And he said, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Now, and I said this in our Sunday school class this morning. He didn't excuse her sin. He acknowledged that she was a sinner. But he said, I'm offering you grace. I'm offering you mercy. And I'm telling you, don't do it again. Okay? That's number one. Story of Jesus confronting a sinner. Or being confronted by a sinner. Number two, John chapter four. Very familiar passage. Jesus is walking with his fellows. Very, very tired. He sits down by a well. They're on their way to Samaria. And the guy's going to town to get some food. 
While Jesus is sitting in the middle of the day at this well, this woman comes up to draw water, and they engage in conversation, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> she gets convicted of the fact that he knows everything about her, and the fact that she's living with a man who's not her husband, and she's had four husbands before that, and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, she gets convicted, and, she, and the end result is, and if you read the whole story, we're not going to take the time this morning to do it, if you read the whole story, what she gets convinced of is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and she goes back into her village and brings everyone out to the well to get them to meet the Messiah. And the whole village, for, for all intents and purposes, becomes saved. Now, Jesus did not sweep her sin under the rug. When the question came up, he said, she said, well, I'm not married. Because he said, go call your husband. She said, well, I'm not married. He said, yeah, I know you're not married. As a matter of fact, I know that you've been married four times, and the man you're currently living with isn't your husband. So he didn't, he didn't pull any punches. He very clearly knew what her sin was, and he very clearly pointed out that he knew what her sin was. But did you hear him destroying her? Did you hear him in any way humiliating, shaming her? Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't shame involved. There was shame involved. Because she wouldn't have repented had there not been. But he was not mean-spirited in the way that he was confronting this sin. Third episode, moving out of the Gospel of John, going to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. There's a guy named Simon. Simon hosts a party. I believe his name was Simon. I always get it confused. Anyway, this guy hosts a party. He's a Pharisee. Jesus is at the party. There's this woman behind Jesus who is weeping and weeping and weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her tears and kissing his feet. And this Pharisee, in his own brain, in his own heart, thinks to himself, if Jesus was truly a prophet, he'd know who it was that was touching him, that filthy, disgusting sinner. And Jesus turns to his host and he says, let me ask you a question. Let's go ahead and turn to that one because I can't quote it word for word and it's really a powerful statement. John chapter 7, verses 36 through to the end of the chapter. Yeah, that's right. Luke chapter 7. That's what I said. <laughs> Luke chapter 7, verses 36 all the way through to the end. And it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped him with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and then anointed his feet with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who it is that's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so Simon said, well, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love the money lender more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, for, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, Jesus again. Two sinners there now. Simon the Pharisee and the woman with the ointment. And Jesus, knowing full well both of their sins, their their collective sins, confronts. What does he do with the woman? He extends grace to her. Mercy, love, compassion. He raises her up and honors her repentant attitude, her sorrowful way of reaching out in the only way she knew. I mean, there was no ABCs of how to get saved when Jesus was on the earth. This was her reaching out to what she believed was the Messiah, and she was loving on him and thanking him for the grace that she was experiencing. And he said to her, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. What did he say to Simon? He didn't call Simon a dirty, filthy sinner, did he? He just told a story. Let me tell you a story, Simon. Let me just ask a question. In this situation between this guy and this guy, who loved more? And Simon answered, well, I guess the one who had the greater debt, they're the one that would love more. And Jesus went, you're right. Look at her. He didn't do anything with Simon's sin. You didn't hear him call him out on any of his sins. But he did. He did it quietly. He did it gently. He did it very effectively. And I would venture that Simon had a lot to think about that night after the party was over with. And I would venture that face-to-face interaction with Jesus was lifelong changing. I can't imagine it wouldn't have been. We don't know. We're not given that information. But when I look at Jesus, and if he's my model, if he's the one I'm supposed to be modeling after, because I call myself a Christian, so I, I want to be like Jesus, the way Jesus I see confronting sin is lovingly, kindly, gently, with mercy, with grace, never humiliating, destroying, grinding into the dirt. But I go back to the Ezekiel thing because I can't get away from it. Because I'm like, Lord, what is that all about? Why why did that grip my heart so much? Because, I mean, it's been 40 43, 44 years since I first read that, and it's still, even to this day, what is this? What is the truth here, God, that you want me to own? What is it about this called to be a watchman, and if you don't do what I say and communicate to my people the words I give you, then I'm going to hold you to account. And honestly, it's like, Lord, is this just because I'm a pastor? And what the Lord has whispered to me is this. Bob, there are certain people in your world that I have given you specific access to. In the same way that Ezekiel, the son of a priest, 
had access to this group of people. He spoke their language. He knew their culture. He was a respected human being in that community. And God, using that authority in that community, began to download words to Ezekiel, (coughs) who was then responsible to pass them on to his community. And God said, in that way, I'm holding you accountable. Because the reality is, Ezekiel, most of these people are not going to listen to what you have to say. Because they're not wanting to listen to me. Because if they were, they wouldn't be in exile to begin with. But that does not negate the responsibility I have, God speaking, to make sure these people know the truth. Because that way, when they stand before me, they will have no excuse that they were not confronted with the truth. So you, Ezekiel, a person of standing in your community, I am charging you with the responsibility to hear from me and speak those words to the people that you have an access to. You know the truth. You have a right relationship with me. You are responsible to live that life the way that I've called you to do. And they see that in you. And so I am charging you to be the watchman on the wall of your community. To speak the words of truth to your people. Because they will listen to you when they won't listen to an outsider. So if I take that and I say, Lord, to whom are you calling me to be a watchman? Obviously my kids, my grandkids, maybe my siblings, my aunt, this church, of course, because you pay me. (laughs) Not everyone in Two Rivers Because there's 1,400 people and I don't know all of them. But God has given me a position in this community now over 17 years where there are a lot of people who know me by first name even though I couldn't call their first name out. And they will listen to me. So I have a responsibility to clearly hear from God and as God tells me to, to speak that truth to those people who are part of my circle, my community. And it is not appropriate for me to stand on the little platform in front of the Pleasant Valley store with a megaphone screaming at the people going, You vile sinners! I may believe that because I look at their life And I see how they live. And I know that they're not honoring God. But they're not going to hear this. But if I'm sitting at the table in the Pleasant Valley store having Coke. And they happen to sit down next to me. Because I'm a person who's standing in their community and they honor me. If God then says, Bob, speak to this person about blah, blah, blah. Then I need to be faithful to speak to that person about blah, blah, blah. And if I am disobedient, I'll answer to my father for it. And he may very well call me to account on the day of judgment and say, that person is in hell because you refused 
to speak the words I needed you to speak in the moment I needed you to speak. And can we talk about this? Now, does that mean I'm going to go to hell? I don't see that. I see grace. I see mercy. But I still see an accounting. God does say that there's going to be a judgment for every single one of us. And so what I'm encouraging you this morning is to go home today because you've got six weeks between now and Easter. And go home today and begin thinking, God, who am I supposed to be an Ezekiel to? Who is my circle with whom I have the ability to speak in their lives and they hear it? That we speak the same language, that we are of the same culture and the same community, and that they respect my words and my thoughts and my relationship with you. Who? And once God begins to reveal that to you, then begin your prayer, what should I say to them, God? And when should I say it to them, God? My goal being, I want them to be in relationship with you. And our church is having this huge celebration in six weeks where they're going to hear the gospel clearly presented in hopefully a palatable and fun way. So this would be a prime time for them to come and hear the gospel. And I won't have to be the one to say it to them. So you hear what I'm saying? Take the responsibility. Go home. Begin to meditate. Begin to listen from God. Where does my circle, how far out does my circle extend? Shine a light over every face and bring them to my mind as I pray. Give me the words to say. Give me your words to say. Words that they will hear. Words that they can receive. Help me not to just cast pearls to swine. But help me, God, to be an effective watchman on the wall for my community. And let's see what God will do if we're all intentional about doing that for our circles. Let's pray.